I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are delving into the lives of people who have left behind the modern world to pursue radically different existences in the 21st century. I'm Jennifer Grayson here in Los Angeles, very much in the midst of the 21st century and feeling a little groggy today after giving up coffee this week. So please forgive me. Uh, but I am excited, really excited about this conversation I had last week and am bringing you today because while it falls under the umbrella of radical new ways of life, it's also achievable. And so what I'm talking about today is co-housing. If you haven't heard about co-housing yet, it is an intentional type of community on the rise that's really best described as a modern and sustainable take on the ancestral village or even just an old school neighborhood where kids can be free and play, which if you have kids, uh, you know, doesn't really exist anymore. So to give you the whole rundown, I have Karen Hoskin here of the Co-Housing Association of the United States. And before we jump in, I just want you to keep in mind as you're listening that Karen is based in Boulder, Colorado, but there are different kinds of co-housing communities all over the U.S. and even all over the world. This is a movement that has been around for some time now in Scandinavia, really for decades. Here in the U.S., there are mixed income urban apartment building communities based around bike sharing and beer brewing. There's a community of cabins uh, in rural Alaska. There's even an eco-village near me in LA that I didn't even know about. And so I hope you come away from this episode feeling inspired about the possibilities available to you right now. Unlike a lot of the other uh, ways of life we showcase on the show, like learning how to homestead or primitive skills, there's not a huge learning curve to living in co-housing. And so if today's episode sparks something for you, you could theoretically search for an available space in a community today uh, and start the path to moving to one right now. Before we jump in, I want to thank you, as always, for listening, for subscribing, for your ratings and reviews on iTunes. It means so much to me and also to our guests. If you haven't done that yet, please go ahead and, and you know, do a rating or review on iTunes. It's always much appreciated. I also want to ask you to please tune in in a couple weeks for an important announcement in our next episode. But for now, that is it for me. I'm here today with Karen Hoskin, the executive director of the Co-Housing Association of the United States. She lives with her husband, two teenage kids, mother-in-law, two cats, and two dogs in Wild Sage Co-Housing in Boulder, Colorado. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the elephant in the room, or in your bio, I should say, that you live with your mother-in-law. So my <laughs> first question, my first question's in two parts. Why is that statement so shocking to us in the modern Western world? And how did you come to live with your mother-in-law? Yeah, it's it's so interesting because it it does shock a lot of people. But then when when you kind of dig a little bit deeper, um, whether they're my peers or folks that are maybe t- ten to twenty years older, it wasn't that uncommon. And I'm not really sure why things are are changing so much. Actually, I do have a theory about that, and that theory is that it used to be 
people were born, raised, and and live the rest of their lives in basically the same area, maybe not the same town or same neighborhood. And now it's just so much more common for people to um, move away to go to university or for a job, career, or something like that. And so I think then for their parents to uproot their lives to go live with their kids I think it's just a little tougher. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does make sense. And also, I just tend to think of it more from the broader look at history, which is that we lived in really close-knit tribes and family groups for most of our 7 million years of human evolution. And Absolutely. I I think that's true. And I think kind of going along with that is that it's it's absolutely the – the norm, the American way, right? Like you, you become a grown up and start adulting and you have your own individual little house with your own individual little family and it's just not extended. And so for, for me specifically in my life, uh, how we came to be with my mother-in-law living with us, one is just uh, like literally what happened. Colorado had massive, massive destructive flooding about five years ago, and she lost her house in the flood, or half of it. (laughs) And so when she was um, evacuated or rescued, um, she came to stay with us in the town. our, Our two, she lived in a neighboring town only about 20 minutes away. So she came to stay with us, and we were thrilled. We had been trying to convince her to Move just a little bit closer. My sister-in-law and family also, one of my sister-in-laws lives just a couple miles from us. And we wanted it to be super easy to just like stop and have a cup of tea. She's a British lady, so she does tea in the afternoons. And it was just uh, with work and kids and, and life, just kind of going that extra distance didn't happen as often as we wanted it to. So we were happy she moved in. But it's been a super... um graceful transition to us and our family of four to add her. And I do attribute um, a lot of that because we are communal people, my husband and I and our kids. We live in a co-housing community and adding family members just seemed really natural and organic. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like this was something you welcome to begin with. What Absolutely. About, what about your mother-in-law? Was there any hesitation on her part? I mean, you said she grew up in England. So what was her family her, life like? To be honest, her hesitation is that she had a large, beautiful home um, that was full of things that brought her memories. She has the cutting board from when she attended Cordon Bleu cooking school um, and just things like that that are important to her. And we live in a relatively small house because we consciously um, wanted a little bit smaller of a footprint. And so that was hard to combine the two households like that. And she had to kind of give up a lot of things, material things, um, because we simply don't have the space. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's another part of it, too, why we just on a broader level, we've moved so far away from these tight knit family groups is that people just are used to having huge houses now. I mean, people think their kids should sleep in two separate rooms, let alone right. having like, you know, your whole extended family in under right. one roof. Yeah. Now we, d- I will admit our kids each have their own rooms. And that was 
that was a, so after my mother-in-law came in and lived with us for a couple of years and then consciously chose to stay with us, even once her house had been repaired to a place where somebody could live in it again, um, she decided to stay living with us, which was great. But now we were thinking, okay, now we have two teenage kids, a boy and a girl, and they rightfully need their own doors to slam. <laughs> so, right. Well, they're older. I, I can understand that. They're at the age yeah. now where they're, you know, young adults. It's basically. nice to have their own space. So we, so we, and we truly considered, um, you know, giving up both of our houses to find a bigger house. Um, but a part of it too was thinking about, okay, so then, you know, to be an honest in, in a few years, my husband and I are going to be back down to just the two of us, right? The kids will theoretically move out on their own. And my mother-in-law is getting older. And so we thought, well, we don't want to be stuck with a giant house and a giant mortgage when we don't need that space. So we split our master bedroom into two and our kids have tiny bedrooms, one smaller than the other, but every everybody has their own space. So... But you built it out. It's not just like a curtain dividing. You actually... No, it's a, okay. it's a real wall. It is. <laughs> uh, so, so tell me about your upbringing. What, you sure. obviously came to this with such an open mind. Uh, this is the life you chose. Mm-hmm. Did you think, and your husband grow up in a, in a tight-knit community and a tight-knit family? So I think I grew up a little bit more like that than my husband, because my husband, both his parents are from England and they moved to the U.S. Uh, when uh, Nick wasn't born yet. His older sister was born in England and then he has a younger sister also. So they they left a really solid community of family and friends to come and, and reestablish here in the U.S. Um, for me, um, I would say kind of my I guess technically it's called the formative years, right? Until you're about five. Um, Grew up in the same town that my dad grew up in, in the Midwest. So small town surrounded by farming country with a little, you know, I don't know, maybe three or four block long town with a local grocery store and little shops and stuff. And my dad came from a large family. My grandfather was one of 13 kids and they, they all had kids. So my dad has something like 40 something first cousins and they all pretty much stayed around that area. So when I grew up, it was not uncommon that there was family or neighbor friends just kind of hanging out at my grandparents' house. Like they would finish doing whatever they were doing for the morning and then stop by my grandparents' house and have a cup of coffee and chat. And and like there was just kind of always people in and out. And so many of them were family, but it was absolutely a small town community feel. And um, that was amazing. That was really amazing. And I feel really lucky that I've been able to, to kind of find that and create that for my kids to grow up in. Yeah. So tell us how you found it. When you first wanted to start your family, how did you come across co-housing? So it's interesting because a previous career that I retired from, my business partner lived in a co-housing community and we worked out of her home office. And so it just was familiar to me in that way because, you know, I'd be walking down the sidewalk to her home office and 
stop and chat with people. And so it was introduced to me in that way. Uh, and then when my husband and I were looking for a house to buy, we looked in that community and there wasn't anything available. And to be honest, we kind of gave up on it. We we're like, oh, okay, well, this is the town that we want to live in. So this is what, that if it's not in this community, oh, well. And we kind of gave up and then it just fell into our laps. Our real estate agent friend called us one day and she says, oh my gosh, I didn't ever believe it, but there's a unit available in a co-housing community in the town that you want. And we were under contract within a couple of days. And that's where you are now, Wild Sage? Yep. So we've been there for um, 15 years now. Wow. So let's take a moment and just talk about what co-housing is, just to give our listeners a better sense, because I know there's a wide range of living arrangements out there. So there is. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk about, you know, just all sure. the different types sure. and also where does Wild Sage fall on the spectrum? Yeah. So the way the way I like to think of it is there is this um, kind of overall umbrella term called intentional communities. And um, and so of intentional communities, there are several different types of intentional communities. Um, so what many people are familiar with is a commune style or there are co-ops, co cooperative living. Um, Co-housing is another one of those. And so what differentiates co-housing from any of the others is that it's, it's people own their own individual private homes, whether that's an urban apartment or a rural single family standalone farmhouse. Um, but then also there is shared property and it often is literal property land where there's gardens or, or whatever. Um, and then often a shared, we call it a common house is the co-housing term, which is essentially a super fancy clubhouse. <laughs> so, you know, suburban neighborhoods or condominium complexes that have a clubhouse we have a clubhouse, but I say it's super fancy because it's it's not the forgotten thing that there might be a kid's birthday party every few months. It's used every single day. A uh, common house usually has um, a large kitchen and a large dining area where everybody could eat together if that's the plan. Uh, there's a living room, often guest rooms, maybe a family room and a workout room, but it's literally used every day. So again, so co-housing, you own your own individual home that's just like anybody else's home. If you walked into mine, you would just think it was a regular townhome somewhere. Um, but then we have this, we have this shared space. Uh, another uh, kind of general characteristic is that we're self-managed. So legally, we're structured as an HOA, a homeowners association. But rather than having some off-site or maybe even out-of-state property manager managing, we manage ourselves. So collectively, we create a budget, an operating budget for the community. And collectively, we decide you know, what landscaper to hire or should we have the sprinkler system uh, turned on yet. Um, 
So those kinds of things. Right. But obviously, we're talking about something much more special than just deciding on sprinkler systems, <laughs> which is why you picked Wild Sage. So maybe can you walk us through what a day in the life is like there? Like, what are you, what are you using the community house for? How is this actually different than, say, you know, a schmancy suburban community with shared amenities? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the, the intentional part of intentional communities is that we choose to know our neighbors, good and bad. Maybe I shouldn't say bad, good and challenging. <laughs> because, you know, you don't always get along with everybody, but you learn how to communicate with everybody. And um, so, for example, the community I live in, we have 34 units. Um, we live in a part of town that the city's master plan was to create density um, because we're surrounded by natural out. Uh, open space. So we are 34 condominium townhome style units on like an acre and a half of land. So we're, we're right next to each other. Oh, wow. Um, and our community has, uh, let's see, we just recently counted 91 human beings in the community and about 30 of those are kids. And we have kids, let's see, the youngest, uh, is a year and a half. And then I think the oldest kid right now is probably my son, who's a teenager, uh, 17 and a half. Uh, the oldest community member, I think also lives in my house. Uh, I don't know if I should say her age, but anyway, so it's multi-generational. Um, and so again, the, the concept is to really know our neighbors. So for example, uh, the other night I was making dinner and I needed a lime. And it really had to be a lime. It couldn't be a lemon or an orange. Like I needed it for this what recipe. What were you making? Special recipe. Um, I think it was chicken Thai, chicken Thai curry salad. Yeah, or you, definitely, you definitely need the lime. I've tried I even lemons in that case. It doesn't work. <laughs> so I could have like gotten in the car, gotten on my bike and went to the grocery store. But I was like literally about to put it on the table. We needed fresh lime. So I knew off the top of my head who in the community likely had a line because we've had meals together, whether it was a meal with many people in our community or just dinner at each other's houses. So I knew who probably would have a line. I also knew probably who was home at that moment, like if they were home from work or if they worked from home. Um, and I knew two of them well enough that one of them doesn't lock their door. And I knew that I could go in and take a selfie of me stealing a lime from their fruit basket uh, and send it to them. Or I had a key to their house and I could call and say, do you have any limes? Can I go get one? And they'd say, yeah, let yourself in. So we know our neighbors well. Yeah. So yeah. What, what, no, knowing them that well, what's the, what's the experience of raising kids like in this community? Amazing. Is it just like nonstop hands to help out and watch <laughs> your kids when you're working? Like how how yes, involved is everyone? Say, I would say yes. And people, people have better experiences if they don't have expectations, right? So, so my son was two when we moved in and my daughter was born here. And I didn't have any expectations about my neighbor friends helping me out with things, which made it 
really great when somebody would offer to do something and I was like, oh, thank you. You know, the screaming baby who has colic and all I wanted to do was just take a 15 minute shower. And at the time, you know, my husband worked 48 hour shifts and my mother-in-law didn't live with us and I couldn't hire a babysitter. What do you do with the toddler and the screaming child? I just wanted to take a shower. (laughs) And somebody heard me walking around the house or, you know, out in the backyard with my screaming child. And she came and scooped her up and said, go take a shower. And I knew that person and I trusted her with my, you know, six week old baby and I could do that. So, um, so there's little things like that. There's great support when somebody has a brand new baby. Um, there's great support when, um, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to raise teenagers, which is tough. I thought thing, I thought parenting would get easier as my kids got older and it does not, it just is different. Oh man. (laughs) And it's (laughs) great to have, you know, in some cases it's sympathy, you know, parents that have, they've been there, done that, made it. They're like, okay, you'll come out on the other side. Fantastic. Or to be honest, having extra eyes on your kids. You know, I have a neighbor who, this is actually great. This just happened this last year. My neighbor said to me one night, she said, oh, it's been really great seeing uh, your son at the farmer's market the last few weeks. And I was like, he's been at the farm, really? What? He's been at the farmer's market? And she says, yeah, he was there with his girlfriend. And I was like, huh, interesting. Okay. So then a a week or so later, it was that, you know, farmer's market night and my son was heading out of the house. And I said, have fun at the farmer's market. (laughs) He says, thanks. Wait, what? How did you know where I was going? (laughs) I was like, well, you know, there's eyes in town. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know what? It's good for the kids too, to know that there's a, a community that they're beholden to. And that they can't just do anything. I mean, we had an incident recently where we live, which is considered more of a community type place within Los Angeles, although it's certainly not Mm -hmm. a co-housing community. Mm -hmm. And there were some kids who after hours had kind of spread um, all this like religious paraphernalia around the school. They were just Mm -hmm. goofing off, but they caused, you know, they broke a lot of bottles and they put a knife out on a whatever. I'm kind of digressing, but they did this thing that it... It scared a lot of people, especially in an age where anything by a school is considered a threat. And they're really, you know, there was only one kid who saw what happened. There were no eyes on them. And and kids feel like they can do anything because they don't feel, they don't think about the consequences of who's around them. And I think that our kids get that kind of, they get support as well. Like, I like to think that my kids could talk to me about anything. I thought that about my mom as well. And it's still just not true. Like there's still just some stuff you just don't want to talk to your parents. And they have these these aunts and uncles, essentially, that they could talk to. So but the other but the other side of that, too, is that. It's perfectly acceptable in co-housing to choose. How do I say it? Like kind of what level you want. Like I'm up. I'm a people person, so I I don't mind telling my friends about, you know, some challenge that I've had in my life or such, and there are people that are more private, and that's also a very acceptable way to live in co-housing. Does that make sense? Like, we we don't all have to be best friends. That's okay. Yeah, and I can imagine there are other things that people who may be more private find comforting about the community. 
I mean, mm-hmm. if maybe they're more present at communal dinners or I don't know, maybe you could tell me about other ways that people yeah. connect. Well, one thing that's interesting is so I think that there's a there's an assumption that people who want to live or do live in some sort of intentional community, whether it's co-housing or a co-op or a commune or or whatever, that they're um, extrovert people, that they're people people. Um, And that's actually, there's many, many introverted people that live, uh, for example, in co-housing. My dad himself, quite introverted. Um, But when he's back, when he was back in his hometown, you couldn't believe like how chatty and social he was. And I realized um, later in my life when I was an adult observing that it was because it was, it was, it was comfortable and easy for him. Right. And so when my dad started forming uh, friendships and relationships with people in my community, because my parents would come and visit us and stay with us to be with the grandkids, my dad was actually quite involved with our co-housing community, even as an introvert, because, again, it was like he knew those people and didn't it didn't require a ton of energy to be able to have a conversation with somebody because it was somebody he knew. Right. And you feel like you can just be a version of yourself. Absolutely. That's what you're saying. So I kind of want to ask you a bigger question because I know you mentioned uh, the teenager in your community who was having a tough time. Mm -hmm. But I would say that as a society, we're all having a tough time right now, right? Mm -hmm. The mental illness is unprecedented probably in our human history. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. Um, You know, considering that we have this long history of living in these tight bands and villages of people... Do you do you think that co-housing and co-housing like Wild Sage is really a, a deep enough solution to address so many of the mental ills that we're facing now? Ah, good question. Thanks. Mm. I know that's kind of a big I one. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge one, um, but I will touch on just a part of that answer, and that is um, so there's absolutely this this trend of loneliness um, in older generations. And kind of going back to what I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation was that, it, again, it used to be that you were born and raised and you kind of stuck around pretty close to home. And so you had that you had that support system, um, especially with major life changes in your life, like the loss of your spouse or something like that. Um, And that because so many people, I I mean, myself, I didn't grow up around here. um, And I don't necessarily expect my kids to stay around here. I mean, I hope they do, but I don't expect it. Um, And so people are moving away. And so there's this this trend in the U.S. of older people being lonely, right? Because their their kids and grandkids have have gone, and so they don't have that um, kind of family support system, which also ties in family friends often. And the loneliness. I mean, there's definitely solid research out there talking about how loneliness is. It attributes to a lot of health problems, like physical health problems. Um, so co-housing, um, I mean, there's many, um, the majority of the co-housing communities are what we call multi-generational communities. 
But there's also this growing trend of senior co-housing communities. And so the concept is the same. The only difference is that with a senior co-housing community, the intention is to attract and have residents living there be, um, you know, different communities, different decisions, but, you know, 55 and older, for example. And so, and they're getting together regularly for community meals or community um, meetings and uh, to do, to work on shared projects together, like, like planting a garden or painting a room or something like that. And, Folks that are living in um, senior co-housing communities are really experiencing a difference in that of having a community, and I think that that I think that that really helps with you know some more mental health challenges or physical challenges. Right. Do you, Do you have any statistics, not just regarding seniors, but um, all ages? of their mental health living in co-housing versus people who might not live in co-housing? I don't have any statistics right now. Or um, any interesting studies. Do you know of anyone yeah, who's really looking at this? I know in Europe, co-housing has been a thing for a long time. For a long time, yeah. There's um, there's a strategic partner of, um, so the association that I represent is the Co-Housing Association of the U.S. And we have a strategic partner that kind of was like, a, like an arm of our association. Um, and they're called the Co-Housing Research Network. And um, they are talking about right now putting together a research uh, study to look at that exact thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I will put the link to that on our show notes page because I'm definitely interested to see what the outcome is. I mean, I yeah. can imagine we already... Well, you know what? You never know what the answer will be. <laughs> I guess that's why people <laughs> do studies. Um <laughs> But it certainly seems like anecdotally living in that kind of situation is just if it doesn't echo, I mean, if it if it doesn't exactly mimic what we've done for most of humanity, it certainly is enough that I don't know, maybe it offsets so much of the loneliness and everything else we're facing. Yeah. Um, So what's your plan now that your children are getting older? What what comes next for you? Will you stay in Wild Sage? (laughs) That's a good question. So. Uh, my husband and I recently have been talking about this a fair amount because they, our kids are getting older. And um, so here's our challenge is that we live in a multi-generational community and we believe in it and we believe that it should remain multi-generational. Yet if our kids move out and we're there getting older, you know, 40 years from now or whatever, we're, we're not a multi-generational household anymore. And so we're, and we live in a family size unit. And so we're taking up space essentially. <laughs> but at the same time, we don't want to move. And so there's an option of, you know, there are a few smaller units in our community and maybe we can uh, trade, or maybe we can sell ours and buy one of the smaller units or something like that. But, um, or, or maybe, you know, there's some other families that are in the same boat as us. Who knows? Maybe we'll try sharing a house together. I don't know. I don't know. I, we don't want to leave co-housing. We don't want to leave wild sage. 
but we do believe in it remaining multi-generational and we don't want to see it turn into, um, oh gosh, what's that term? Uh, NORC, natural occurring retirement community. Oh, I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> right? Like we, we, that would be a shame, especially because we saw how, what an incredible place to raise kids and, and what an incredible place for kids to be raised. Like that's something that I think a lot about right now as my kids are getting older and my son is thinking about university and he's thinking about, well, what is it? Who, who is he that he has become possibly because of growing up in co-housing, right? And so I think about advantages. Sometimes somebody will ask my kids, well, what's it like? What, you know, what's it like growing up in co-housing? And they don't know how to answer because they don't have anything to compare it to. Right. <laughs> um, but I think about things like my kids have always at any age been comfortable with talking and interacting with people of any age because that's what they've grown up with, right? No big deal for my teenage son to scoop up the two-year-old toddler who is, you know, pulling on his pant leg. Like he doesn't even think twice about that. Yeah, that's so uh, lovely. Yeah. Or my, we had a very, very sad and sweet situation uh, about a year ago, uh, actually a year ago in just a few days where one of our longtime community members had been here actually from the beginning and he had a lot of health issues and he um, passed away at home uh, with hospice care. And my, he was a huge, huge music lover. And my daughter had been learning how to play ukulele and she likes to sing. And she came over to his house um, and sang to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what to say from there. I, that pretty much <laughs> sums up the experience. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, so what do you think? Let's look at the bigger picture. My last question for you before we, yeah. before we sign off. Uh, what do you see when you look at the future of co-housing? And what do you see when you look at the future of, you know, our industrialized, increasingly urbanized <laughs> country where people are living farther and farther apart from the people that they love? Yeah, I definitely see not only not only the number of co-housing communities increasing, uh, the number of uh, senior co-housing communities increasing, but I also see in in mainstream news, I'm seeing acknowledgement and recognition. I mean, there was an article about co-housing in the Parade magazine. Everybody gets the Parade magazine if they get a print newspaper, right? <laughs> Um, so that was pretty exciting. But even just on um, various types of social media, um, we're seeing an increase in popularity of other types of intentional communities as well. So co-living is the is kind of the the hip new popular term right now. And I think that all types, uh, you know, a lot of I should you should never. You should never say all, right? Um, <laughs> many types of communal living are becoming more popular. And I, and I think it's for two reasons. I think one is affordability. 
it is becoming more and more expensive to live, right? It's uh, people are paying ridiculous amounts of money for higher education um, jobs, you know, while certainly some of them pay very well, a lot of them, people really have to work hard to earn a living to be able to live in a house. And so shared housing like co-ops or uh, co-living are becoming more and more popular, not just like when you're in college, but um, as a young professional adult or uh, starting a family or becoming uh, later on when you're older and you're by yourself. So I think economically, there we're going to see a continued increase in types of intentional communities. And then I also think um, to like earth consciousness, like, do we need a 5,000 square foot home for one or two people? Or could that one or two people live in a 500 square foot flat? Do we need to create giant footprints right. to sleep in a bedroom and when we're not even there during the day because we're working our butts off at a job somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Do our kids need a giant basement playroom filled with toys <laughs> when they can have, you know, a giant yep. shared outdoor wonderland? Yeah. And then I think other earth resources too. Uh, for example, in the community I live in, we have one lawnmower and so, and that's what's used and it's just, it's shared or, um, you know, car sharing is, is quite popular in co-housing communities. And I think just kind of on the whole, uh, many people who are drawn to live in co-housing are, um, often are quite conscious people. And so they're thinking about how they live on this earth in other ways. So, for example, electric cars, right? Many communities um, have EV stations to plug in their electric cars. Uh, or, like I said, they car share or have an amazing bike garage that stores 50 bikes for all the people in the community that, you know, commute around town to go to the grocery store and stuff. So I, I see, I see more and more co-housing communities, more and more intentional communities. And I think um, many people, many, many people would be happy living in any one of those situations if they simply knew about the options. So where can they find out more about the options, Karin? Where can listeners follow your work, get in touch with you? Give us the whole rundown. Absolutely. So um, we have a website that has an amazing immense amount of information. Um, and that is cohousing.org. And uh, it lists how to find communities, how to start communities, how to form communities, how to build communities, um, how to uh, figure out how to do this within your own community. Um, we do uh, conferences. Uh, so we host a national conference every other year. And on the uh, off years, we do other events like webinars and things. And we have a national conference coming up at the end of May. So it is Thursday, May 30th through Sunday, June 2nd uh, this year in Portland, Oregon. And again, a conference, uh, hundreds of attendees and they can, uh, those people are people that are looking to create co-housing communities, or they currently live in one, or they are a professional helping people create them. So it kind of 
hits all of those um, various parts of co-housing. And are there still tickets available? There are still tickets available, yes. And um, we offer tours so somebody could actually visit some co-housing communities as well as visiting them through open houses. Fantastic. We will be sure to put all the links up on our website so that you can snap up your tickets before you sell out. Karin, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi, guys. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Karin Hoskin and learning more about co-housing. I realized a couple of days after my conversation with Karin that I had forgotten to ask her a really important follow-up question, which was about what some of the real challenges are uh, around co-housing. I think as we all struggle to to find a way to bring community into the 21st century, you know, it's hard to create these communities that aren't built around shared cultural ties that we might have had in ages past where we are all from the same country or we were all from the same tribe. And so I just wanted to give Karen the chance to weigh in. And she said, some of the challenges are mundane, like differing opinions of how clean the kitchen floor needs to be. Sometimes it is a stance closer to the heart, such as expected behavior of children of varying ages. I find that if a community member can take a step back to breathe, then communicate through the process of coming to consensus or simply agreeing to disagree, the challenge actually becomes a good thing. It improves not only our communication skills, but our tolerance. It can allow us to become more inclusive and accepting of our neighbors and their beliefs. I'll leave you with that and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode. Bye.